Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have poured into Diane, Lord, the testimony that she bears, Lord, of being one who has sought to follow after you, listened to your voice, and radically obeyed you, Jesus. We pray that she would minister tonight out of the overflow of all that you have accomplished in her life, God. That this would be a powerful, life-changing moment for every single person in this room. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Okay. Jenny, thank you so much for what you shared. We could just go home now after that great worship and what you shared. That was wonderful. It really is just about surrendering all, right? The, extra, the most extravagant gift we can give to the Lord is all of us. You know, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's nothing more extravagant to give than all that we are. And so uh, I just want to share briefly before I launch into... Um, what God has given me tonight. Uh, I want to talk to you about missions, but I want to start with a broad funnel and give you a view. Can you guys see okay? If, are you going to be able to see the screen? or Probably not, huh? You might have to, like, stand up. But I want to give you a broad kind of overview of the state of missions in the world, and then I want to talk specifically about Minneapolis-St. Paul. Uh, I'm not from here. I live an hour and a half north in a little town called Grantsburg, I'm 10 miles out of that town. It's a metropolis of 1,000. I'm in an unincorporated township called Trade Lake. If you count the dogs, the cats, and everybody that lives there, I think it's about 25. <laughs> and so um, here's our, our theme for the night. Here's what the Lord said. when We're talking um, in prayer tonight about the end times and about... Jesus coming back and about the reality of, his, of him standing with his feet on the earth and who it's feeling close because the world's getting crazy. But he said this in Matthew 24. He said, this gospel will be preached to all ethnos, people groups, and then the end will come. This gospel will be preached to every people group because we know in the end of the story there is gathered around the throne people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, every dialect, every little village that speaks some unique dialect, even if that village is like Grantsburg and only 1,000 people in that entire people group, tongue or dialect, at least one person from that people group will be present around the throne singing worthy is the lamb that was slain. So we want to take a look at how close we are. So to the ends of the earth. I love this little boy pointing at the world. Okay, go ahead. The reason that the Holy Spirit came, there's a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit, particularly among charismatic churches and movements, but it's very clear in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus' last words before he ascended. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it's not just that you will speak in tongues or you'll get gifts or you'll fall over. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses. I mean, it was God's goal, it was the Son's goal that the fame of Jesus would cover the earth the way the waters cover the sea. So you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right where you are, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here's our world today. Here's what we're looking at. Population is 7 billion people roughly. 
Uh, people groups, different people groups, that means having different cultures, different customs, different values. Um, people groups are 16,640. Unreached groups is 6,950. But of that 6,950, the number of unreached people is 2.8 billion. Okay, most of that, when it says unreached, it literally means people who have not had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here we are, 2,000 years after Jesus, the one who said, and take my name to the ends of the earth. We're still this far from getting the job done. Still 6,950 people groups, still roughly 2.8 billion. Okay, the status of global evangelization in terms of reaching the world, this is the status of where we're at. I think this one is world as 100 cans of Coke. So I'm going to compare it to 100 cans of Coke equals 100 people, all right? So 10% are Coke lovers. That means they're true believers in Jesus. Okay, they really love Coke. They know Coke. They drink Coke, Okay. 20% like Coke, but it doesn't have to be Coke. So they're nominal adherents to Christianity. In other words, they'd say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Like you'd say, yeah, I believe in Coke. But it's not like you have to have Coke. You know, Jesus and. Okay? 30% never heard of Coke. So they never had a can of Coke because they never heard of Jesus. 40% heard of Coke but never drank it. They heard of Jesus, but they never responded. So in other, that's where we're sitting at in terms of global evangelization. Really only 10% are true believers in Jesus. 20% have heard of him and have responded. 30% never heard of Jesus. And 40% heard, but did not respond. Okay. Um, most of the unreached people of the world are in what we refer to as the 1040 window. The 1040 window stretches from northern Africa on the west side, um, 10 degrees latitude to 40 degrees latitude, and it literally is a rectangle window that comes east to the Philippines. So you've got that, you've got really northern Africa, and you've got in that window all the stands. <coughs> And, and all the religions. You've got, you've got Islam, you've got Buddhism, you've got Hinduism, you've got communism. Um, you have all that stretching across the 1040 window. Here's some stats on it. So there, right there is the window, okay? That's where most of the world is yet to be reached. Go ahead. 4.6 billion people live in one of the 67 nations that are in that window. Non-Christian religions include Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, animism, and atheism. It's crushing poverty, and over 2 billion have never heard of Jesus. When I say crushing poverty, I mean the vast majority of that window are living on less than $2 a day. The missionary force in the world... 
This is interesting too. 87% of missionaries work in the Christian world where the gospel is already known and the church is already planted. 87%. Now let's be real about why. It's because we all like to be comfortable. It's because when we live, when we work in these parts of the world, we have wonderful things like electricity, roads, infrastructure, toilets that flush, actually running water that you can turn on a faucet, not just water that you run to get. Okay? 12% of missionaries work in the evangelized non-Christian world. In other words, that 40% who have heard of Coke but didn't respond. 12% work there where people have heard but not responded. You know what's left for a number. Only 1% work among the unevangelized world, among unreached people groups who've never heard. 1% is focused on that 2.8 billion. And then we're wondering, hmm, I wonder why the job's not done yet. We've got to really take a good look at our missionary force, the reality of the field, and all of those things. Okay? Tithes and offerings. This is also very, very fascinating. 94% of USA giving we keep. Okay? In other words, when we take our tithes and offerings out of our pocket and give to God... God, for some reason, decides that 94 cents out of that dollar should stay in the USA because we are his darlings. <laughs> because we're his favorite country, right? And so 94% of our giving to God goes into a nation that represents just a small, small slice of the population of the world. We have about 300 million people in the United States, so 94% of our giving to God stays for the uh, 300 million, kind of ignoring the fact of the 6.7 billion. Okay? 5% of our total giving goes to missions in general. So these statistics are very close to the missionary force. 94% we keep. 5% of our giving, this is U.S. giving now, goes to missions in general, okay? But only 1% of our total giving goes to efforts among unreached people groups. So again, missionary force, 1%, missionary giving, 1%, to that huge bulk of people who've not yet heard of Jesus. So when will Jesus return? I read that verse to you, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to every nation and people group, and then he promises that the end will come. So what do we do now? What can we do now, given this information? First, we need to gather information, which is what I've done. I've spent literally years... Um, scouring through every resource I can possibly find to find out the reality of our current um, situation. I've examined and cross-examined and checked and double-checked from some of the most reliable sources out there on missions. One of the best 
that you want to stay current is Joshua Project that's out of Colorado Springs. It's a great organization to stay current on information. Pray intelligently. Once we gather information, then we need to pray intelligently about the information that we've gathered. This information has changed the way I pray. Give intelligently or intentionally. When you gather information and when you pray, it will change the way you spend your money. Get involved. What are you going to do personally? Oh, is that it for that one? So I want to talk to you about, go back to that last slide. When I first did this research, I wept. My response to the research was to cry. And then I said, Lord, I promise you, this information will totally change the way I live. And it has. I said, I will not, I flipped everything I did. I was doing missions in reached countries. I was given a lot of my time to places like Mexico and the Philippines. And I, I said, I know that these countries are considered reached. I'm not going there now. And that's I, I, interesting. I'll tell you just a little. I just come back from Mexico, but I'll tell you why. But it changed radically where I put my time. Then I reevaluated all of my tithes and offerings, not only of my personal money, but I, I raise money as a missionary that I invest in the world. I flipped. I started giving all the money that I raised, about 100000 a year, and I made sure that I was targeting that money at unreached people groups. So it changed the way. I didn't just give because I like somebody. I didn't give because they were a relative or connected to so-and-so or some mission organization that I had a connection to. I gave intentionally at unreached people groups. Um, there's a newsletter up on the table there's, that I just uh, sent out. There's only one copy or two copies. I'm sorry, I should really get a bunch of them for you. But one of the things I started doing was investing. Like right now, I support 50 missionaries every month. Every single one of the missionaries I, I support are non-white. There's not a white one in the bunch. They're all indigenous missionaries in countries targeting unreached people groups. So in China, I'm supporting four people every month that are reaching a people group called the Bema. A few months ago, there was not one single Christian known. among. There would never been a believer among the Bema. Six months after starting supporting those four people, there are now 150 Bema believers, the first ones in the history of the world, as far as we know, that are now learning about God. Because someone, not me, I had a part, but I wasn't at home. I'm at home in America, but I found people who wanted that people group. Okay, so I have changed the way I give and then I've changed the way I get involved. And so I feel like the Lord has especially been saying to me this year, Diane, you have to really evaluate every speaking engagement that you are asked to do on the basis of this. Okay, so I just got back from Mexico, and I told you I hadn't been there. For 20 years, I hadn't been to Mexico, except just in the last six months, I went twice. Because 
There's an association of churches there that said, will you come and speak to our college and career age? So last week I was with them, 1,000 Mexican believers, you guys' age, that are gathering for a world missions conference in Mexico for the purpose of sending Mexican young people to the ends of the earth. They're sending them into Hindu, Buddhist, and especially Muslim countries. Whew! I mean, it was so much fun to be with them. Hundreds of your age on the floor after every session just yielded to God. And, and people your age that have gone out into the Muslim world and have died. I mean, this is a radical, totally different group of Mexicans who identify their own people train their own people, send out their own people, and 100% support their own people with no Western aid. So they're not bringing me down because I'm the white connection to the walking ATM machine. They're bringing me down merely to fire them up. So we need to be living with this in mind. Okay? The ends of the earth will hear. We know that. We're going to win. The job is going to get done. The Lord is going to have a people for himself from every tribe ever created. This is what he says. After this, I looked. This is John in Revelation. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb and singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. From every tribe and tongue. Okay. Is that it on that? So, as this was a a few months ago, actually, I was thinking about coming here and talking to you guys. And so I know, obviously, that this group and the School Harvest Project and many of you coming from colleges that are in the Twin Cities, I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, Do what you want to do here, Diane, but tell them that the world is in the Twin Cities. And so I just thought, you know what, I need to do some research on this and really find out the hard realities about the Twin Cities. And so, you know, Minneapolis-St. Paul is one of, and because of all the churches here and the mega churches here, it's one of the most sending cities on short-term mission trips to the world of any city in America. Minneapolis-St. Paul has thousands of people who go on short-term trips to the world. And we might be asleep at the wheel because while we're running to the world, the world is here. And the world, while we're targeting our little favorite places to go, the enemy is targeting Minneapolis, St. Paul. I mean, I was shocked to find out how on, okay, we are on the boardroom in heaven, no question about it. The Twin Cities is a strategic city in the world. Heaven knows it, and so does hell. Hell knows it because they are obviously countering or trying to counter what God's purposes and plans are for Minneapolis, St. Paul. This is a city in the heart of America. It is incredibly strategic. It is a gateway city to the world, and it is crucial in the kingdom of God. So hell wants it, and we're running to the world 
while literally their strategy to claim this city for darkness. So, by country, the 15 largest people groups of foreign-born residents in Minnesota are Mexico, Laos, India, Somalia, Vietnam, Canada, Ethiopia, Korea, Liberia, China, Thailand, Germany, Kenyan, Kenya, the Philippines, and Cambodia. Okay, here is a general breakdown of some of the immigrants of the Twin Cities and the religious beliefs and practices that they have brought with them from their countries and have established strongholds or roots in our city. Um, we have a high population of Hispanic, obviously. So we have a lot of Mexican, a lot of Filipino. Both have brought very different forms of Catholicism than the Catholicism that we know of generally here. In Mexico and in the Philippines, Catholicism is um, a stew. It's a hybrid, a mixture of quote-unquote, pure Catholicism with animism and spiritism. It's very dark. It's a much darker Catholicism. The Hmong have brought animism and shamanism. The Indians have brought Hinduism. The Somalians have brought Islam. The Tibetans have brought Buddhism. And the Korean have brought animism and Buddhism. We also have a very, very high population of refugees, which is a unique set of immigrants all by themselves. We have 90,000 refugees that have had to flee their countries for various reasons. Now, I wish I had all this up on PowerPoint, but I don't. Someday I will. But if you can catch some of this and take notes, it's pretty fascinating. And we can put it on the website, your notes. Yes, we can do that. Okay, the Twin Cities is ranked... Number three in America for human sex trafficking. Number three in the United States for human sex trafficking. We're, we're a sleeper city. So, so hell gets away with crap because we're asleep at the wheel. And so Portland is number one. My guess is New York is probably number two. I'm not sure about number two. But Portland is number one. Minneapolis-St. Paul is number three. The Phillips neighborhood, down by the, the dome and down near uh, Bethlehem Baptist, is the most diverse neighborhood in the entire U.S. Over 100 ethnic groups are represented in this one neighborhood. The most diverse cultural neighborhood in the United States. The Phillips neighborhood is also has the largest concentration of Native Americans, of urban Native Americans, the highest concentration in our nation. St. Paul has the largest Hmong community in the U.S. It has the largest Chinese student population in the U.S., uh, the Buddhist population in the Twin Cities is home to the second largest Tibetan Buddhist population in the entire U.S., second only to New York. It is also the location of the largest Buddhist temple in our nation. M Minneapolis, Paul, <coughs> has the... Could you hand me that water behind you? Um, there's a... Are you liking it? 
Okay, it so it has the largest Tibetan Buddhist population in our nation. Um, the largest Hindu temple in America is in the Twin Cities, located in Maple Grove. Largest Hindu. Now, so we're looking at we're looking at the major religions of the world. You're hearing I call it thumb. I do this thing for kids called thumbs up. Okay, tribals. Hindus, unreligious, Muslim, Buddhist. Those are the five main ones. And when I say unreligious, I'm usually referring to communism, but it's literally the thumb. It's an acrostic for the thumb. So tribals, Hindus, unreligious, Muslim, Buddhist. Every one of those world religions is targeting Minneapolis-St. Paul. Every, when you say the world's largest, the world's biggest, the world's greatest, it's Minneapolis-St. Paul. Isn't that interesting that out of all the cities in America, we would have the largest Buddhist, the largest Hindu. We have over 100 Muslim mosques in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Several of them have, been, have taken over Christian churches that have shut down, that are now mosques. Now get a load of this. Saudi Arabia is targeting Minneapolis as the chosen location for a $48 million, 300,000 square foot Muslim youth center mosque. It will be the first of its kind in the entire country. $48 million. One of the reasons is because we have also the highest Somalian population, and that's all radical Islam. The FBI has come numerous times to Minneapolis-St. Paul because our Somalians are disappearing and ending up as jihadists and are found dead or alive in Yemen, in Afghanistan, in Qatar, Hezbollah connections. I mean, and their Minneapolis-St. Paul is a feeder because of the Somalian population back into, they feel the call to go back and be radical jihadists. Now, we've even had the FBI come up to my little town, Grantsburg, because of paintball courses in our woods and saying, if you have a lot of non-whites, because we're white on rice up there, <laughs> if, you see any, if you see any color up here, call us, is basically what the FBI is saying, because we don't have any color. Everybody's Swedes, Norwegians, or Germans. So if, you know, 10, 12 people show up, you should automatically be suspicious, right? Um, That's sad, but it's true. Um, The Twin Cities has one of the highest witch concentrations in the country, with an estimated 20,000 witches who meet in 236 different covens or groups. Many of them deliberately have their groups um, right across the street from a church or meet by a church to curse or pray against um, that church. I know that some of them targeted me when I was doing youth ministry in my area because I get a call at 3 o'clock in the morning saying, 
Hi, Diane Brask. We represent a witch coven in the Twin Cities, and we're just calling to let you know that you will be the next blood sacrifice at our coven. We understand you're working with youth, and we don't like it. We want a blonde, blue-eyed um, sacrifice, and you're the next on our list. Now, this is kind of an interesting phone call out of a dead sleep, you know? <laughs> And I, so I lied and said, you don't scare me at all. <laughs> um, you have no right to determine when I die. I die when the Lord says, not when any witches in Minneapolis, St. Paul say so, so I don't expect to be hearing from you again. Goodbye. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. <laughs> Obviously, I'm still alive, so I must have called their bluff. But we, we saw some mighty dark stuff up there. I have no idea, no, no question but that we were targeted by witches. The Twin Cities has the fourth largest cult, occult, world religious groups in America. Ekankar is headquarters. They're down by Chanhassen. They're global headquarters is Chanhassen. Um, the Advocate, it's kind of a gay, lesbian uh, newspaper, um, the February issue of this year ranked Minneapolis as the nation's number one most appealing gay metropolis to live in, far ahead of San Francisco and New York. Um, the Twin Cities was ranked, so keep in mind, besides all the religious stuff, Number one, uh, number three for sex trafficking. Number one for gay, lesbian, uh, bisexual, transvestite population. There's 300,000 in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, the Dalai Lama has visited here many times. The Dalai Lama has granted his permission and his blessing to establish the Gayoto Wheel of Dharma Monastery in Minneapolis. Doesn't mean a lot to you guys, but basically there's only two in the world. There's one in Tibet where the Dalai Lama lived until he went into exile in India. So the only two of these kinds of Buddhist monasteries exist in India, in Tibet, and in Minneapolis. The monastery is currently located in Columbia Heights, a northeast suburb of Minneapolis. The monastery hosts classes for anyone interested on Saturday and Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. And on Sunday night, about 100 Tibetans gather to pray and chant, and Westerners are invited to observe the ritual. Um, there are almost 35,000 Hindus in Minneapolis, the largest Hindu temple in the nation is right here in Maple Grove. So, as you can see, we have our work cut out for us right here, right? Because if we, there are 200 different languages spoken in the Twin Cities. 200 languages in the Twin Cities alone. So literally, we don't have to spend that window that we were showing, that window's here. 
That's 67 nations in the window, the 1040 window. They're here. They have connections with their people back home. People are very connected when they come to America. They form basically their own little mini countries within our cities, and they're very, very connected back home. And as you can see, their religion is very connected too because even the heads of their religions and their religious forces get behind their people as they inhabit cities as they come as refugees or immigrants. I mean, it's not a coincidence when $48 million gets chosen to be poured into the Twin Cities to establish the largest Muslim mosque youth center in America. They clearly want to recruit youth to Islam. So the, the question is, what do we do? Okay, so I want us to take a look again. I'm, I'm going to, how much time do I have? I have enough time to tell you a quick story. So, so I want to tell you about the thumb, tribalism, Hinduism, unreligious, Muslim, and Buddhist. So this is all personal mission stories. So when I'm in um, the Philippines, I go way, way up north in the farthest northern part of Luzon. Um, I call them the loincloth brothers. Um, there's not a lot of clothes up there in the mountain area. But, you know, yeah, so I don't want to, you know, be recruiting all you girls to go on a short-term mission trip. Okay, but there's a lot of uh, spiritism and animism. And so we go into this one village called Paganao, and it's fascinating to see how fearful people are who believe that spirits inhabit objects and believe that they need to worship the sun god, the moon god, the tree god, the, the, the river god, the rock god. I mean, they literally believe that spirits inhabit inanimate objects. And so um, in this particular village, and there's real stuff that goes on. So in this particular village, there's two trees called Belite trees. They're huge trees. The trunks are like 10 feet across. I mean, they're enormous trees. And occasionally, a ball of fire would drop out of the sky and hover over the Belite tree, right over the top of this huge tree. The people would freak out. The witch doctor, it's only a village of like 500 people, the witch doctor would come out and say, oh, the spirits are angry at us. This means you're going to have to sacrifice two of your water buffalo, 10 goats, 50 chickens. Bring them to the sacrifice site because the spirits are mad. They had a beautiful little river flowing by, not a fast-coursing river, not a creek or a stream, but just a nice, gentle, it was a Norman Rockwell village, really, with people living in small bamboo nipa huts on stilts. It was so picturesque, and the people were terrorized because they worshipped these spirits. So I supported a couple of girls that went, Filipinos, that went as missionaries to this village, and two men in the village became Christians. But the first guy that became a believer was a, an elder in the village named Leopoldo, kind of like the scope on your gun if you hunt, the Leopold scope. Well, this is Leopoldo, okay? So Leopoldo, he gets saved, and he doesn't have a pastor, and these girls aren't there. They would come and go, and he feels from the Holy Spirit 
that he should not have to live in fear anymore because he has Jesus now. This is a baby Christian. And he's tired of the evil spirits dropping out of the sky and freaking out his village. So he decides, you know what? I'm going to chop down this tree. So here's a guy by himself who takes an axe and goes out every day, whack, whack, to a 10-foot trunk. And the village is going, whoa, he's going to drop dead any second. And they're telling him, Leopoldo, don't do this. If you think that ball of fire is bad, wait till you see what the spirits do to you next. And he says, you know what? I'm not scared. I got Jesus in me. So he keeps chopping away, right? After a whole month of hacking on this tree, wham, it goes down. Everybody is just like, whoa. They're looking around. Leopoldo's still standing. (laughs) So then the other guys who aren't even believers think, you know what? If Leopoldo's still alive, let's get rid of that because the the ball of fire would leap from one tree to the next. So the other guys all got their axes, and they went after the other Belite tree. I mean, it's a wild story. So by the time I show up in town, we have a few Christians now who are telling me this tree, the Belite story, and they said, come, Sister Diane. So they bring me to the sacrifice site, and they say, Right here, where Satan ruled our village, we want to build our first Christian church. So my little church up in Alpha, Wisconsin, Cheesetown, is a church of about 60 people. We took a love offering and gave enough money for Paganau to build their first church on the site where they once sacrificed to the spirits. Isn't that amazing? And, but that's spiritism, animism. It controls people by fear. You have to sprinkle blood on your rice field before you can plant so that the spirits will bless your field. This religion is here in the Twin Cities through this warped view of Catholicism, through Mexico, through the Philippines, through the Korean, through Vietnam. There's other places that have brought, it's basically witchcraft. It's animism, spiritism, shamanism, witchcraft, all of that. That And, and in a sense, you almost get the witches spinning off of that too in their dark magic, white magic. I mean, anything that's not a Jesus, it ain't white. And so the Native Americans, that would be another group that would bring um, this into the Twin Cities as well. Hinduism. Okay, I'm in India for the first time. I, um, I'm leaving the country after being there for a month. I go up to Calcutta. I had not spent my time in Calcutta. I had been in Andhra Pradesh among a people group called the Banjara Tribal Gypsies. So I go up to Calcutta for one day before I could get a connecting flight to Thailand. So we decided, let's hire a taxi, my friend and I, and we'll just hire him for the whole day, take us around. So he wants to take us to the most glorious Hindu temple that there is. And so we go into this Hindu temple, and I am telling you, I have never seen a building like it. It was magnificent. I mean, it had imported 
marble and stone and gold and silver from all over the world. It was dazzling, and it had this gorgeous fountain, bubbling fountain, spraying water out in front. It took your breath away. So I walk into the temple, and the Hindu priests are at the front in what you'd consider their holy of holies, and they must have had some feeling that somebody was there, and they turn around and see me. Well, I'm the only white person that's my friend and I are the only white people in the temple. And so they leave the front and they come to greet us. And they were like peacocks. I mean, they were strutting their stuff. They had their robes on and, and they came and spoke perfect English. Welcome to our temple, ma'am. What do you think? And I said, sir, I got to be honest with you and say, you have the most beautiful building I've ever seen any place in the world. It is stunning said, can I ask you, how many gods do you have here in India? How many gods are there in Hinduism? And he said with pride, 320 million, ma'am. And I said, three hundred, that's the population of the United States, not quite. We're not quite there yet. So this is how many gods they have. And I said, really, sir, do you know them all? Every one, ma'am. And I said, with tears in my eyes, I said, sir, I have one God. His name is Jesus. And he is so magnificent and so multifaceted. I've known him since I was a little girl, and there are days I feel like I met him yesterday. He, I can't imagine 320 million to try to just keep up with their names and figure out who they are and what they like and don't like. Whoa, I just get a headache thinking about it. Then I said to him, so all around the temple are alcoves. And there's idols. I mean every kind of idol you can think of, multi-breasted idols for the goddess of fertility. Just unbelievable stuff. Idols with human skulls, with dripping blood and knives for the goddess of death. And it's just, and people are in there on their knees weeping and bringing in incense and bringing in sacrifices and rice and, and bowing down at these like bay windows all around. And I said, sir, can I just be honest with you? Like I was trying to be really gentle. I said, you know, you see all the gods that are around your temple. You know, you know what they're made of. All of them are made of some kind of stone. And they have eyes, but really, sir, they don't see. And they have ears, but they can't hear what that person is saying. They might have something in them that looks like a heart, but they can't feel a thing. I said, you know, sir... I've been in your country only one month, but so I'm not an expert. But I said, I've never seen so many miserable people in my life. I said, do you know that you have people all over this nation on pilgrimages right now? I saw them. They have all their belongings on their head. And a whole village is walking. And I ask the people, why are you walking? And they say, because we're hoping we can find a good God. They want to know out of the 320 million, which one is good? And I said to this priest, I said, you know, sir, I know the good one. I know the good God. His name is Jesus. I wish so much that you knew him and that your people knew him. You know, you guys could really keep your 320 million. I won't trade mine 
for all 320 million of yours on any day of the week. I'm sticking with the one who's really nice to me and actually really nice to my country, even though we don't all know him. You know, I had an Indian ask me, how come God is so nice to America and so mean to India? And I said, what do you think? And he said, I've prayed about this a lot. He goes, I think it's because India more than any country in the world and Hinduism more than any country in the world has violated the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He said the curse on India is because we are number one in the violation of the first commandment. So unreligious. Now move into communism. um, Communism and with communism, humanism, atheism, evolution, all of these beliefs that we don't need a God. Come on, gods are for weak people that need a crutch, that need a prop, that are too stupid to believe in the power of people. I mean, that is really, that is communism. That's an unreligious spirit that then believes in evolution and believe because we've got to remove God. We've got to, you know, whitewash and, and, and clean up God from every sphere of our society. We're really close to that in America, actually. We want, we want God out of everything. The only time it's okay to have God back in is if you have something like Newtown. Then all of a sudden it's okay to pray. Then all of a sudden, you don't, you know, when, when a gunman breaks into your school, then the news can tell you, and everybody was praying. When we have 9-11, then we'll hold hands on, at Congress and sing, God bless America. But the rest of the time we say, take a hike. We don't really need you anymore. We can handle this one ourselves. But the unreligious have taken it to another level, like China. China is the fastest growing Christian nation on the planet with 30,000 people being saved every day, nearly 1 million a month, thanks to Mao who created one of the greatest spiritual vacuums on the planet. Um, What he did since 1949 was created unprecedented hunger because we were made to worship, right, Ben? We were not made to worship nothing, and so this void has made a hunger for Jesus that is unprecedented in the world because God has written eternity on our hearts. We have eternity written on our hearts. So the unreligious, the other fastest growing right now, interestingly, is Iran. Iran is experiencing something very close to China right now, and it's your age that are coming to the Lord by the droves. Please pray for Pastor Saheed. Pastor Saheed is a U.S. citizen that is an Iranian. He is right now being held in Evan, even prison, one of the worst in Iran. He has been held there since September. He's being tortured, interrogated, kicked in the guts. He right now has internal bleeding that they're not treating. His life is in the balance. His wife last week testified before the UN, 32 years old, 
and two little kids, like four and two, and she said, my husband is being tortured for one reason. He believes that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin for all people, all humanity that will place their faith in him. That's her testimony before the UN in New York. And she adds, please do everything you can to get my husband released. But I want you to know that whether my husband lives or he dies, God is good. Who? 32 years old. That's her testimony before the UN. So God is moving among unreligious nations. Now, of course, um, uh, Iran wouldn't be considered unreligious. They'd be considered Muslim. So for Muslim nations, I got to tell you this amazing, amazing story about God is doing incredible things because the Muslim nations are the most closed to us of all. And so it is really, in some countries, some Muslim areas, there's not a single believer that any Muslim knows. They don't know a Christian because they don't exist. Because your head will roll. Okay, so what God is doing to reach those people is he's just personally going there. I mean, he is personally showing up. In some cases, Jesus himself, angels, revelations, visions, dreams, voices. Jesus is coming to the Muslim world. He wants them. He wants them. But he's also illuminating his word. They get a little piece of his word and they like get it. It's like the light comes on. So one of my friends from Kenya goes to Nigeria, which is about as ugly as it gets, especially the northern part of Nigeria, which is radical Islam. So he goes up there to do what I did for Harvest Project, teach um, the people there how to tell Bible stories to engage Muslims in the discussion of God's word without knowing it's God's word. So on the way up there on the bus, a Muslim woman comes on, you know, with her get up on and sits by him. And she says, he looks like he's like 18 years old, but he's 32. She says, young man, what do you do? And he says, I'm a storyteller. And she says, well, tell me a story. So she tells him the Mary Martha story. It is four verses. That's all it is. And so he starts telling the story. Young man, what are you talking about? That woman named Martha invited Jesus and some men into her house? That's not possible. It doesn't say in the story, where are, where's her husband? Where's the brothers? Where's the uncle? She said, in, in Muslim world, you don't invite men into your house unless the men are present, right? So the story goes on. And then Jesus goes into the house, and Martha had a sister named Mary who sat at Jesus' feet. Wait a minute. You mean to say that that woman could sit in the same room as the men? And that Jesus, this imam in her mind, a religious teacher, would let a woman sit at his feet. What is going on? This is a really, this story doesn't fit her worldview. Then Martha comes in. Lord, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work? Tell her to help me. Wait a minute. She's stopping Bramwell again. How come Jesus didn't backhand her? She should have been slapped across the face for a woman telling a man what to do and an imam at that. So she was, and then Jesus graciously responds, Martha, Martha, 
You're worried and upset about so many things. But Mary has chosen the one thing that is needed, and I'm not going to take that away from her. She is absolutely blown away by the whole story. Okay, they have some discussion about it for about an hour where they just talk about the story. So Bramwell asks her, so as you think about this story that you just heard, how does it hit you? Who would you like to be in this story if you could? And she said, I would give anything to be Mary because I've never been allowed to sit at any religious leader's feet. I would love to learn from Jesus. Well, you can. So on the bus, Bramwell leads a Muslim woman to Jesus because of four verses in the Bible that blow the worldview of women in the Muslim world. Okay, this woman is semi-literate. So for a whole year, whenever she would lead another Muslim woman in her village to the Lord, she would borrow somebody's cell phone and text message Bramwell. Just want you to know I got another one. (laughs) Okay. This woman does not know the gospel. She doesn't yet know, maybe even today, that Jesus died on the cross for her sin, that he rose from the grave, that she doesn't know doctrine. She just knows that day she met Jesus, unlike any Muslim she's ever heard, and he changed her life. So in one year, Bramwell received 48 texts. She led almost a woman a week to the Lord in the privacy of their own homes as their Muslim men were out doing their thing on four verses. So God is up to something in the Muslim world. Amen? So Buddhist, and then we'll finish. So um, a few years ago, I had an organization, uh, a Christian leaders, but not a Christian organization in Hong Kong, asked me if I would be willing to go to the Tibetan Plateau to do research to see if I could use my farm background as an inroad to the Tibetan world. And so I would serve them through meeting the felt need of agricultural development, and hopefully by developing that friendship, they would that there'd be an opportunity at some point to share. So it's a long story. I can't go into a lot of detail except to say this. God is so has our back when we go into the unreached parts of the world. He can hardly wait to get there. Like I literally had Jesus say to me one time, Diane, you wonder what just happened tonight? Let me tell you. You only get one chance to make a first impression, and tonight this was mine. I've been waiting for 2,000 years, and that's why I pulled the stops. That's what God is like when we get out and join him, right? He's the one who said go, so of course he's going to back us if we do, right? So I'm out there in the Tibetan plateau by myself. I mean, it's not like I got a team or anybody else with me, and God just (laughs) blows my mind, and I end up in a meeting with the minister of agriculture, the minister of grassland development, and the minister of livestock. And... (laughs) And I'm from a little dairy farm in Wisconsin. Only God, right? 
I, I don't have a degree from the U of M in horticulture or anything. I just milked cows when I was a kid. And now I'm, now I'm sitting there with the Minister of Agriculture for the whole province. Okay, so I have a translator who, who knows English. Well, she's a mother tongue Amdo-Tibetan speaker. But she also knows Mandarin and English, so she's translating for me. I know as soon as we start talking about farming that this is my sister. I know right away because of her eyes. Because the Buddhist eyes are the darkest eyes, and I don't mean dark brown. I mean nobody's home. There is not even a pilot light burning. I mean, there is just nothing in their eyes because Buddhism is a religion of futility. The goal of, of Buddhism is the perfect state of nothingness. Whoever thought that we're going to heaven? That's a far cry from nothing. The perfect state of nothingness and that desire is evil. All desire is evil, so you have to kill all desire and with the goal of attaining the perfect state of nothingness. Wow, is that, that's so weird, right? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and everything else you need is going to be added unto you. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. I mean, I'll take this over Buddhism any day. Ha! So long story short, I end up working with this gal, not on farming, but on a translation of God's stories, 18 stories chronologically placed, put on a solar player so because there's no electricity or batteries or anything so the nomads can listen to God's stories as they watch their yaks and goats and sheep. In one year, 150 get saved. I go back in... I go back in to um, check on my farming stuff, and sitting in a farmer's little house is a blue solar player that I know is one of mine that I smuggled. I, I didn't. I had somebody else smuggle in. And I said, what's that thing you have on your wood shelf? He says, we call it the nice blue radio. <laughs> and I said, so what's on the nice blue radio? And he said, stories about the one true God. And I said, really? I said, what do you think, sir? And he goes, I believe. Yeah. Amen? I said, so what do you do with this? And he said, some of us nomad farmers, when, when, when it's snowing, we get together every week and we listen and listen and listen to these stories about the true God. None of us are Buddhists anymore. We all believe in Jesus. Okay, one of these players, we have no idea how somehow made it into one of the Dalai Lama's leading monasteries for training up the highest-ranking monks. And the number one Lama right under the Dalai of this place gave his life to Jesus. <laughs> so as, as far as I know, he is still the leading Lama in that monastery, but now working for Jesus instead of Buddha. <laughs> And leading Buddhists to the Lord. Amen? So, okay, I'm going to end with this. So I'm flying home from Seattle recently, and I get bumped to first class thanks to the boss I work for. I don't have to pay for this seat. And I get, I'm sitting next to a businessman. And um, I didn't want to talk because I was exhausted. 
And so I tried to go to sleep and told him, wake me up when the food comes. <laughs> so he wakes me up, and then he says, hey, by the way, what's your name? And we chatted for a little bit, but I still didn't want to talk. I really just wanted to get into my own little zone. And he said, so what do you do? And I give a different answer depending on if I feel like talking to people or not. <laughs> so I thought, what's the shortest answer I could give him to shut him up? And I thought... <laughs> So I thought, you know, this is a bad example of being a witness, I know, but I'm just being honest. And I said, missionary, because usually if you say that, the conversation is over. You know, it's not like it's a door opener for most people. And so sure enough for him, he just launched on me. You blankety blankety blank. I just hate you blankety blanks. And I mean, it was just like venom. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll wake up on this one. This could be kind of fun. <laughs> So we had a really interesting conversation the whole flight back from Seattle. And in the middle of it, I said, okay, sir, so obviously you reject what I believe. So I'm just curious, what do you believe? And he said, I believe in Buddhism. Well, at this point, we were friends, so I laughed in his face. <laughs> I said, you have got to be kidding. You have been listening to Richard Gere and Diane Sawyer and Barbara Walters and the Dalai Lama. Come with me. You just, you know, take off your suit and tie, put on that nice saffron robe. I will drop you off in one of the leading monasteries of the world. And by the way, sir, you look like you're an important person. What do you have? Like, what's your place look like? 3,000-acre ranch on the east side of the Olympic Mountains just north of Seattle. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to get rid of that all because that's desire and that will kill you. So <laughs> you, you need to... Sell the ranch, sell your 8 ATVs, and just, you got to take that vow of poverty. Get rid of your wife, too, because, you know, you need that vow of celibacy, and kill all that evil desire. And then, sir, have you ever seen a hamster before? Just a minute, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you at the end, okay? Okay, I, I, will, I will talk to you at the end. So I said, have you ever seen a hamster? They just spin on a wheel... And they go in circles, but they never go anywhere. They just exhaust themselves going in circles. That's what Buddhism is. So two weeks ago, I was in San Francisco before I went to Mexico. Actually, three weeks ago. I went there to teach 800 kids VBS. They ranged from 5 years old to 12 years old. My goal was to teach them world religions so that anyone from kindergarten through 6th grade would understand the lies and the deceit of the enemy. I wanted them to understand all these religions and to know that when we pray, we are not praying to the same God, that not all gods are the same, and that not all roads lead to heaven any more than all roads lead to Minneapolis-St. Paul. And so by the end of this, five-year-olds, I could ask them, what's tribalism? What is animism and spiritism? What are the gods they worship? How do those gods make them feel? What is the difference between that religion and Christianity? Because I wanted them to understand the uniqueness of Jesus in a world of religion. Those kindergartners had it nailed. Everyone from 5 years old up to 12 years old could tell you these major world religions and their beliefs. And my hope was that as they grow up in San Francisco, there were 40 nations in my VBS. 
40 nations in VBS, that they will never be led astray by the deceit of the enemy that says, don't worry, kids. All gods are really basically the same. And all religions lead you home. These kids will never believe that. They're coming up to me. Miss Diane, please pray. My daddy's name's Amin. He's a Muslim and doesn't know Jesus. Please pray, Miss Diane. My mommy's a witch. Please pray. My dad's a Buddhist. Child after child, understanding. And I never said their families, their parents were going to hell. I just talked about the world religions and that they don't lead, all religions don't lead to heaven. These kids have a deep concern for their families because the Holy Spirit opened their eyes and even five-year-olds got it, that my parents need Jesus. So I just want to challenge you as we close tonight that we need, to, we need to open our eyes to all the things we saw in that first part of where we're at in the world, but we also need to open our eyes. I want you guys as communitas at some point, I don't know if we have time to do this tonight, but that you pray and ask the Lord, Lord, show me of these five. Who should I be focusing on? I would love to see communitas break down into five groups and say, this group wants tribalism in Minneapolis-St. Paul. We're going to intentionally build relations with those who are trapped by animism and spiritism. This group feels called to India, wants to work with the Indians because of Hinduism. We want to study Hinduism. We want to know Hinduism. We want to reach the Hindus. This group is saying, give us the atheists, the communists. This group says, we want, the, we want the Muslims. We want the Somalians. And another group says, give us the Buddhists. And whoever it is in town, in the city, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, give us, give me a burden. Put a certain people group on my heart. And then let's see what the Holy Spirit does. Who is sensing what call to wear and call it a night? I want to get some feedback from you. Just want different ones to respond. What are you hearing tonight? Just get some feedback. Real loud. Got some work to do. Can I go? Can you go? You want to go. Anybody else want to go? Doesn't it make you feel like you want to go? Why would we stay here? More feedback. Just think about it and feed it back. Amen. Good deal. John Paul Jackson went to the witches. 400 of them became Christians. I heard that story, and I, uh, I, th I thought I must have heard it wrong. And so when he came back, I said, I want you to tell the story about the witches. And he used the same figure. 20,000 20, witches in Minneapolis, St. Paul, 236 covens. Keep more, more feedback. Pardon? It's time to preach the gospel. Pardon? Light churches on fire. Um, some of these forces are coming. We wouldn't be able to get here if there wasn't forces drawing us. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. There are forces here that are drawing those forces here. And there are forces out there that are sending those forces here too. Works both ways. Feedback. Think about it. Feedback. That's a very good question. I think you start with prayer. Um, you just start because this is what I gave you. I know tonight is like getting a drink out of a fire hose. It's like engage, we would say at the farm, engaging the power takeoff on the manure spreader where it all flies at you at one time. Um, but that's where we just need to pray and say, because that's where I started. I didn't know what to do with all this information either. And I just said, okay, Lord, I got to put one foot in front of the other. I'm going to start to pray intentionally, do research intentionally, make choices about what I find out. And what I found is when you start, God opens doors. God will be the one. I never even prayed for the first people group that God brought me to. I never heard of them, so I couldn't even pray. The first place that God sent me after this research was to the Banjara tribal gypsies in Andhra Pradesh in India. And so, um, but I'm just, I'm saying this too. I would love to see you guys go, but please hear me. We can have a big focus on going, but the world really is here. And when God says, reach your Jerusalem, see, it's God's job to decide how broad or how wide we go, but it's our job to decide how deep we'll go. And God seems to have a very specific uh, target with rings that go out. And he says basically to his disciples, start where you are, right? So in a sense, Minneapolis-St. Paul, as you guys are developing your lives, your ministries, your, your vision, you're right here. And I think God is saying to you, practice where you are. And if we're faithful in little, right, if we're successful, if I can reach Muslims here, then I can reach Muslims other, other places. If I can reach Buddhists here, I can reach Buddhists other places. But we like cut our teeth, you might say, Earn our stripes in our Jerusalem, right? What if we turn the 6.30 time into a missionary prayer meeting? What if people came at 6.30 to pray and we got uh, united vision for what God wanted to do at Communitas? I think that would be a great place to, to pray and listen and ask God to speak to us. And if you can, come at 6.30 and let's pray together. For and this. it might be that God, you know, when I said, wouldn't it be cool if God broke up communitas into five groups? But it may be that God doesn't want to do that, that he wants this whole communitas to focus on one certain people group in the cities. We don't know what God will say, but I believe that he'd direct you with uh, what you've heard. Indeed.
And then also as a corporately as a group, where is our empathy? <coughs> I'll stay afterwards and pray with anyone that wants to pray um, specifically about, you know, God giving you direction or maybe you already have a certain people group on your heart or a country on your heart, um, I'll stay and pray for you. But as you heard, it's upstairs for Holy Spirit and for newbies, right? And it's, I just wanted to address the young man's question over here about where do we start, how do we start, and specifically with the issue of prayer. Prayer is always where these kinds of things start. And I just want to, I want to say this. This is a gentle admonition, but it's also firm. And that is this, that some of you are simply sleeping too much. Okay, I, I, I was lit on fire by the Lord just recently to f- discover that they train Navy SEALs how to sleep six hours a night for extended, I mean, like months and months and months when they're out on mission doing stuff. It's just six hours a night. What if the people of God got a vision for that? What if every person in this room started waking up at three in the morning? I'm going to wake up at three. I'm going to interrupt my sleep pattern. I'm going to go to the Lord and I'm not going to stop until he starts giving me plans and directions for the call that he wants me to walk out in these cities related to what I just heard. Because we need to be start connecting powerfully with the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what that looks like in heaven. It looks like faith. Because you're, you're taking seriously the reality of the battle and you're saying, I'm going for it. And the Lord is going to raise up, I believe, in this room, believers who are going to be like Navy SEALs in the spirit. They're just going to go for it. They're not going to live as like the casual Christian approach that many of us have been spoon-fed in this, in this particular cultural setting. You're going to stand up, you're going to be on fire, and you're going to look different from other people. And God is calling some of you to that. Let's stand. This becomes a prayer room now. After we have a time of prayer, then uh, we'll have times of fellowship here. But this will be mainly for prayer. Upstairs there will be food. You want to go up and fellowship. We'll have the newbie meeting after a little bit. We're going to pray first here in the Holy Spirit meeting. Just quiet your heart now and just uh, be in a place of openness. Be in a place of, of receiving. Put your hand on your heart. Ask the Lord if He would please touch you. Ask the Lord to touch you so that you wouldn't forget that something would stick in your heart from tonight. That beyond an, an emotional feeling, that something would stick that would change how you live, how you relate to a broken and lost world. Heavenly Father, we are so sorry for our priorities. We are so sorry for the things that we call important. We all have things that are just too important to us. And things that are important to you are less important to us. We're sorry that there is often a major disconnect between how we spend our time and how you would call us to spend our time. We're very sorry. And as best we're able to, we want to we want to repent tonight which means to change our mind, to change the way we think about something. We want to, 
We want to think about you and about people differently tonight. And we want it to stick. We don't want to make a momentary change. But we'd like you to get a hold of our heart in a new way. So that it begins to impact not the way we think only, but our behavior. The way we, our habits, our way of life. We would like to live differently. We would like to live in the way that people live who have said, I want to touch the world. I want to touch my world. I want to, I want to have an influence. I want to impact my place. Father, you've called us to our Jerusalem, and we've heard about Minneapolis-St. Paul tonight. We bless our broken city. We bless this broken city that we call home. And we pray that you would stir up within us a passion deeper than what we came with tonight. I pray that there would be a passion within us, that we wake up tomorrow, something would be new, something would be different that would impact the way we live individually and the way communitas exists corporately. We pray that you would fire our prayer meetings, that you would fire our worship, that because we are looking outside of ourselves, and it's not about us and about our happiness or about collecting more toys, but it goes beyond this, that it would impact behaviors and that we would have more influence with other people because something has changed deep within us. If you agree with that prayer, just say something like that to God. Say it to God in your heart or loud enough so that you could hear yourself. Just say it to God now. Something about what you want to see different. Go ahead. Okay, now turn to the person next to you, on either on your right or on your left. You're going to pray that God's fire would be in that person. Someone next to you. Everybody needs to have somebody to pray with. Someone on your right, on your left. Connect. This is for prayer time. This is not for anything but to pray. Just turn to somebody. Find somebody. One other person.